about him. And uh, before we move on, we got through chapter 15 last week, but before we move on, uh, I want to go back one more time to chapter 14 and consider something very seriously here. Uh, I made the comment before that Abraham is the father of the faithful, and that what Abraham did, and how he did it, and in what manner and attitude he had it, uh, and the attitudes he did have, are very, very important for us. Uh, they're tied in with Malachi 4, uh, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. It is made very clear in Scripture that our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are those that we are to look to and to take example from. You can see that in Genesis, I mean in Hebrews 11 very clearly as Paul singles them out and goes through that. But there's a matter here that I think needs to be taken very, very seriously, and I'm going to show you some reasons why before we're done today. I don't know whether I'll even get past it, but uh, we'll see. I went over this, but I want to tie some other scriptures with it at this time to show what God expects of us and why and what punishment or curse and what reward will come as a result and also perhaps what the church's position needs to be and indeed shall be. Now you remember the story here in chapter 14 about Lot having been taken captive and Abraham gathering up his servants, 328 or some, whatever the number was, and going after them and taking the spoils of war. Caught up with the crooks, the robbers, released the people, sent them back home, and then went back to the king of Sodom where these things had been stolen. And before giving them back, he did not consider them all the king of Sodom's, even though that's where all this had come from. The spoils of war have to be divided properly. And what Abraham had taken, truly, at that point, was his. Spoils of wars belong to the victor. That has always been the case, and that's the way Abram looked at it at the time. So before he gave what he gave to the king, he took tithes, verse 20, and said, Blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him tithes of all. So it wasn't just agricultural, it was of the spoils of war. So when it says increase uh, in Leviticus, it is talking about any increase, not just that of farmland. How people can reason that is beyond me. Why would anyone want to be a farmer if only farmers give first, second, and third tithe? Wouldn't it be better to make saddles or cars or something and do anything but be a farmer since they would have to carry the whole burden of, of uh, supporting the government, the, the widows, the strangers, and the orphans. And, well, of course, there is a good side of that. The farmers would be the only ones who went to the feast because they'd be the only ones that saved second tithe to go to the feast on. So people have even become so selective that they'll delete the first and third 
and say, well, the tithe was only of second tithe to go to the feast. Because that's the one they get to keep. They don't even have to give it to widows or orphans or to the church itself. Very twisted, very shallow, very emotional reasoning that does not square with Scripture. Anyway, then after he gave to his allies who helped him get the victory and took out what the young people had eaten, the young men who fought with him, he gave the rest to Lot and didn't keep any for himself. He was very, very generous. He could have kept it all legally, and the king of Sodom even said so. Uh, but Abram decided to give it all back, lest that man could go away and say, I'm the one who made Abram rich. But Abram understood tithing, and he understood the first tenth belongs to God and gave it as such. Now, where else do we go? Let's go back to Joshua 7, and though this is not specifically here about tithing, I'm going to tie some things together for us. Let's understand where we are today, and let's understand where we are in Joshua 7. Uh, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness had ended, and it was time now to go into the promised land, God had instructed Joshua on what to do, and they had crossed the River Jordan, and now they were beginning to take possession of the land. And the first city on their way in was Jericho. Now, you'll remember the story of Jericho and how they circled the city seven days and then let out a shout and all the walls fell down. Let's pick it up in verse 7 because they had just issued the word shout for the eternal has given you the city and the city shall be accursed even it and all that are therein to the eternal in other words it doesn't go to you everything that's there is God's only Rahab the harlot shall live she and all that are with her in the house because she hid the messengers that we sent and you in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing lest you make yourselves accursed when you take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. If one person took of the things of Jericho, God would curse the whole camp. That's pretty serious, isn't it? But all the silver and gold and the vessels of brass and iron are consecrated to the eternal. They shall come into the treasury of the eternal. So all the spoils of Jericho were to go to the treasury, not to individuals. God made it very clear what was to happen to it. Now notice too that the treasury was maintained by angels? No, by men. Men took care of those things. That has always been the case. So the people shouted and the walls fell and the city was taken. Now let's go down to chapter 7. 
I, I was reading in 6, I'm sorry, I said 7. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. Now notice, it is a collective guilt. It is a collective sin. The children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Eternal was kindled against the children of Israel. So even then, though one man committed the crime, God put the responsibility upon all. Now, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And let's understand that God holds us responsible. We are our brother's keeper. Cain questioned that, remember. But God held Cain responsible. You may not think you're your brother's keeper, but you are. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth Haven on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. Now, they were coming into the land. Now, we are in this same position. The 70 years of the end time of Zechariah 1 uh, has come to, a path, to come to an end, I think, and God has allowed us to begin to come into the land. He gave us opportunity to own a piece, of what I believe is the promised land, and to begin to move in and to take it. And the Bible is written as a pattern, and the things of the past are things of the future. So we need to understand Joshua 6 and 7 in the light of us being in the same position they were in when they were going in to take the land, and the God was very dramatic here. Now, up until this time, they had all pretty much answered for themselves, and the ones that murmured died in the wilderness, all of that generation. Each individual died. But now, they were coming to take hold of something that God had promised, and God held them collectively responsible. And he became much more dramatic with both his blessings and his curses. And I tell you, we are going to see God react both in blessing and in cursing far more dramatically than we have experienced in the end-time church in the past. We are coming to a time when God is ready to move forward. He is going to begin to take a more direct hand or to play the cards in his hand and he holds all the trumps. And things are going to escalate and they're going to be handled differently than they have in the past. Now they went up against the men of Ai and they began to have trouble. They began to be killed in battle, and no one understood what the problem was. Verse 10, And the Eternal said to Joshua, Get you up, wherefore lie you thus upon your face. Joshua praying and wondering what's going on. God says, Why are you lying on your face? Get up and do something. Now, could not God have looked down 
without any human interference, whatever, spotted who was stealing and taking what was to go in God's treasury and zapped him. Solved the problem. God could have done that, couldn't he? He has that power. God didn't, did he? He went to Joshua and says, why do you lay on your face praying to me and in sorrow? Get up and do something. So he expected the physical leadership to do something about it, not just him. Wherefore lie you upon your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. One man did it, but God held them all responsible. We are all part of the body. If one part of the body suffer, they all suffer. If one part of the body sin, the whole body sins. Right? Can you as an individual sin with your hand or with your foot or with your brain and not the rest of the body be involved? No, you can't. And the church is analogous to a physical body. God took them all into account. For they have even taken of the a cursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. Again, they, all the way through. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore. God simply says, I will not be with you anymore. Do we want that circumstance for this little group. Except you destroy the accursed from among you. Up. Get up, Joshua. Do something. Set aside the people and say, sanctify or set yourselves apart against tomorrow. For thus says the eternal God of Israel, there's an accursed thing in the midst of you, O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. God says there is a remedy. You're cursed. You're going to keep dying in war. You won't be able to take the promised land unless you solve some problems. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the eternal takes shall come according to the families thereof, and then by household, and then down to family, and into uh, one human. Skipping on to 16. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes. Judah was taken. Uh, he had the, the 12 lights, uh, Urim and Thummim, and Judah lit up. That's the way this was done. Finally got it down to the household, verse 18. And Achan, the son of Carmi, was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, My son... Give, I pray you, glory to the eternal God of Israel and make confession to him. Now, Joshua was put in charge of this interrogation by God, and yet Joshua told this man, confess, and look to God. And tell me now, so the confession was to God and to man, in this case, what you have done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the eternal God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, 
I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. So they sent messengers, and they found it, and laid them before the Eternal in the eyes of all Israel. Verse 24, And Joshua and all children with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and everything he had, his daughters, his oxen, his asses, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them to the valley of Achor, valley of trouble. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Eternal shall trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones to this day. So the Eternal turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. Pretty serious way of handling the situation. We don't stone today, but God does say that we remove people who will not obey God from the congregation. That is the New Testament example all the way through, that we resolve the problems. People need space to repent, opportunity to change, but if they don't do that at some point, the church is instructed all through the New Testament to take a hand in the matter. Some form, some way. Now, let's go to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Let's understand something. What should our purpose, our goal, our mind be upon? Matthew 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust does corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Our goal, our purpose, should not be to lay up wealth on this earth, in the bank, whatever way. That isn't our goal, that isn't our purpose. It is an ungodly purpose. Christ is saying that right here. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust does corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. That's where our treasure really needs to be. You know, when we're feeling broke, we don't have money in the bank. But we need to take a spiritual assessment sometimes. Are we spiritually broke? You might have a lot of money in the bank here, but it doesn't mean a thing if you don't have something laid up in the treasure house in the skies. And here is the point, verse 21. For, or the reason I said that is, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, haven't we read many, many scriptures in Jeremiah and other places that say that we'll find God when we seek him with our whole heart? There are many, many scriptures that say that in one way or another in the Bible. Now, Christ expounds that a little bit here and says, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he's speaking here of physical treasure. 
because he's saying don't lay up physical treasure on earth. So he's saying that what you do with your money is going to indicate where your heart is. It's that simple. We are tied as human beings to money, to wealth, to those things that we look upon as making us prosperous. Human minds and hearts are tied there. And if that has ever been truer of any place, it cannot be, could not have been truer than it is of America today. We are probably as covetous, a materialistic people, as has ever been. But God says that he will know where our heart is by where we put our treasure. Why do people have an attitude about tithing? Why is it they, so many in the church, the greater church of God today, are so adamant against it? Why do we have so many articles in the, what they call the church newspaper, the journal, about it? Because people really have an attitude. And they, you don't see many articles trying to disprove the Sabbath or the feast, do you? But boy, you see a lot in there about disproving tithing or showing it only should be done by certain individuals, not by everybody. There is a movement in the church to get rid of it. But if our heart is defined by where our money is, you would think that that would be the least of things that people would be concerned about disproving, wouldn't you? And if your heart was there, they try to dismiss it and say, well, free will offerings. And then you see precious few of those from them because the heart is not with God. And that is the bottom line. I'm not interpreting that. I'm just reading it in Christ's own words. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you treasure the things of God, then the physical treasure will go there as well. That's how he that's one of the main ways he judges. And I'll show you that very specifically and very adamantly here in a few minutes. Now, Matthew 23, Christ called the Pharisees just about every filthy, foul name you can call them. He calls them fools and blind. He calls them snakes. He calls them whitened sepulchers. He calls them a lot of really, really unfavorable things here. Hypocrites and twofold childs of hell. Pretty strong, isn't it? Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you paid tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Now, judgment, mercy, and faith are more important than tithing, yes. But he says, these ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. I expect you to do both. 
understand what are the more important, weightier matters, but be sure you take care of the other as well. Now, the justification has been, well, these were the Jews. That's not us. He's not talking to us. He's just talking to those Jews. Are we going to ignore statements in the New Testament that say we are the spiritual Jews? Romans 2.29, he is a Jew which is in one inwardly. that we become of the tribe of Judah, as Christ was. If we are connected with Christ, we are spiritual Jews, because he came and was born of the tribe of Judah. And that's why Hebrews 7 goes through and says, says there had to be not a destruction of the tithing law, but a change in it, because Christ did not come from Levi, he came from Judah. <coughs> And that we are to pay tithes to him, a Jew, even as we Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, who was the Christ or the God of the Old Testament. So Abraham paid them to him then, and we are to pay them to his church, to him now. It wasn't done away. It was simply changed because he came from Judah. Paul makes that very, very clear. Now, let's go to Haggai 2, very much an end-time book, written to the church at the end that has to build the last temple before Christ returns, both spiritual and probably physical. Chapter 2, verse 11. Thus says the Eternal of hosts. Now, here's something that the Lord God of all the hosts had to say. Listen up. This is of God now. Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread, or pottage, or wine, or oil, or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. In other words, he's saying to the priests and asking of them, Are you discerning between that which is clean and that which is unclean? Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people. I'm not talking about pigs here. I'm talking about people. And so is this nation before me, says the Eternal. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. Much of what is being offered by the ministry today is unclean in the churches of God. And they're not making a difference between clean and unclean. But God is saying here that those who build my latter temple have to be shown the difference between what is right and what is wrong, what is clean before me and what is unclean before me. Now let's go to the book of Malachi and see this 
impressed very much in chapter 1. Now, this is not written to the Levites. People like to dismiss chapter 3 as being just to the Levites. We'll see that's not so. Who is this book addressed to? The burden of the word of the eternal to Israel. Now, we are Israel. We are the Israel of God, as Galatians points out. We are Zion and Jerusalem, as Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 point out. We are spiritual Jews, as Romans 2, 29 points out. So anything written to the Jews is written to us if we're part of Christ, if we're part of that Jew. We are to take him on. He is our brother. He is our Savior. God did not send him as a Benjamite, a Levite. He sent him as a Jew. And the whole New Testament shows that we are Jews in Christ. It doesn't matter what race we are, what tribe of Israel physically we might be of. We are Jews, spiritually. So anything that is said to the Jews, we had better take personally. Or to Israel, since we are the Israel of God. And he was speaking to the church there in the book of Galatians when he said that. Now let's go on down and see that he, he does address, however, the ministry and the priests. And we'll see by the time we get to the end of this that this is an end-time book written to the end-time church, not just something written to ancient Israel. A son, verse 6, honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? Now we are to turn our hearts to our Father in heaven and give him his honor, as the last verse of this book says. And we are to honor Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we are also to honor our physical fathers. Three levels there. Where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, says the eternal of hosts to you, O priests that despise my name? And you say, how have we despised your name? The ministry today would say, we don't despise God. We love God. We're preaching God. But God says to the church, spiritual Israel today, to the ministry, you've despised my name. You offer polluted bread upon my altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted you? And that you say, the table of the eternal is contemptible. We hold in contempt some of the things of God. We are not willing to accept some things that are of God. If you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or accept your person? If a human doesn't find this acceptable, why would God? Verse 9, And now I pray you, beseech God, that he will be gracious to us. Perhaps Achan asks that God be gracious. They, they got rid of the sin, they stoned him. This has been by your means. Will he regard your person, says the eternal of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for nothing? Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for nothing. 
I have no pleasure in you, says the Eternal of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. Now he's speaking directly to the priests here. Because they don't make a difference between the unclean, and they do not preach the whole word of God, but let some of it fall to the ground, as Jeremiah warned against. It's high time we quit letting any of God's word fall to the ground. I'm not going to fall on my face and I'll say, Oh, Lord God, deliver us, and not get up and do something. God got after Joshua for doing that, didn't he? For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. Verse 11. When will that be? Right at the end time. Has God's name ever been great among the Gentiles? Not to this day. But very shortly now, it shall be. So God is saying in this context that the end is near when this applies. It isn't something that applied way back. Well, it applied then too, but it applies in spades now. Because the end of the age is upon us. So this is a book that is very directly toward the end time church. At the time, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered to my name. This is lead, the events leading right up to the millennium, because incense won't be offered in his name all around the earth until the events leading up to and including the millennium, will they? And a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, says the eternal of hosts. He's about to take a hand. He's about to move forward in doing things that are going to cause people ultimately to stand in awe of the creator of heaven and earth. We're right on that threshold. But you have profaned it in that you say the table of the eternal is polluted and the fruit thereof, even as meat, is contemptible. Sometimes we can despise some of the things of God. I'll show you what he uses as an example in a little bit. You also said, behold, what a weariness is it. Not only do we have an attitude about some things, but it's a wearying thing. It's a hard thing. It's something, you know... Who wants to do this because it's it's hard? That's an attitude people can get. You have snuffed at it. Or, oh, well, it's not a big deal. It says eternal of hosts. And you brought that which was torn and the lame and the sick. We brought lame, sick attitudes. We have an expression these days, well, that's lame. We can't bring a lame attitude before God. Now, this was speaking in the context of animal sacrifices, but it's talking about now when there are no animal sacrifices, and it's talking about our attitudes and our approach. This you brought an offer, thus you brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand? Am I going to put up with your lame excuses and your physical, human logic and reasoning? Is that acceptable to God? But cursed be the deceiver, which has in his flock a male and vows and sacrifices to the eternal, a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, says the eternal of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. And if it's not, it soon will be. 
we had better bring our best attitude, our best offering, everything we can before God. And Christ himself said, your heart is going to be in the same place your treasure is. That's one of the key areas he uses to judge where our heart really is. And now, you priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the eternal of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings, Yes, I have cursed him already because you do not lay it to heart. I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and I shall take and one shall take you away with it. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant might be with Levi, says the eternal of hosts. It was a covenant of life and peace. But the truth was, the law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips, verse 6. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge. They should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the eternal of hosts. So he's saying, I'm holding the ministry responsible for not letting you know what you had better do and be clean before God and have your heart where it ought to be. Okay? You're departed out of the way. You've caused many to stumble at the law. We have people writing articles against tithing and giving to God and giving to the widow and the orphan and laying up a tithe for the feast, as the Scriptures so clearly show. You can't take one verse and make your religion on it. You have to take all that God says about a subject or you don't have the whole word of God. Verse 9, Therefore I have also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Kept some of it, some of it you don't pay any attention to. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of the eternal which he loved and has married the daughter of a strange God. So not just the Levite, but the Jew and all Israel. And this book was written to Israel, not just to the Jew. Now let's go to chapter 3. I'm laying some groundwork here for some things that I'm going to say and we're going to pay attention to. Verse 17 of, of, uh, of 2, let's read that. You have wearied the eternal with your words, yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that does evil is good in the sight of the eternal, and he delights in them, where is, or where is the God of judgment? God isn't paying any attention, or we can do certain things and it's okay. We can make our own policies. We can decide what we will and will not do. Not good. Verse chapter 3. When we have those conditions, he says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the eternal whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the eternal of hosts. God is going to appear suddenly to his church. 
Christ is going to stand up, as it says in Zechariah 2, and he's going to begin his work, his mighty work. He's going to begin to play his cards. He's going to take a more active stance. Instead of sitting back with his face turned away, if we repent and we turn to him with our whole heart and therefore with our treasures, he will come to us suddenly. I don't think this is talking necessarily the second coming, as we shall see here in a moment. But when he begins to take a direct hand with the church, are we ready for that? Are you ready to be mightily blessed or mightily cursed, depending on your attitude and approach and what you do? It was that way in Joshua's day. It was that way in Peter, James, and John's day, wasn't it? When the Holy Spirit came as cloven tongues of fire, and people were healed by the thousands and converted by the thousands. It was very dramatic, and Ananias and Sapphira died very dramatically because the blessings and the cursings were both amplified. We are very, very close to that time, brethren. Very close. Will it be blessing or will it be cursing? He'll come suddenly to his temple. Verse 2, but who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? Who will be able to stand and say, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to do your work. And who will fall before, before him? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now, a refiner's fire takes the impurities out, and fuller soap scrubs all the dirt off. Now, if we refine ourselves and clean ourselves and look to him the way David did when it was time to repent and said, purge me with hyssop, if we're looking to do that and clean ourselves up, maybe we'll be able to stand before him. If not... He's going to put the brush to us and the fire. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the eternal an offering in righteousness. So he addresses, first of all, the ministry here. And he says, what you say, what you offer before my people and before me had better be the right thing, true, righteous, The ministry is held accountable first. He tells the two witnesses, leave out the court of the Gentiles, deal with the church. Those who tend the altar and those who worship therein. So the judgment is both on the ministry and upon individuals in the church. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant to the eternal, as in the days of old, as in former years. Truth will be spoken. And I will come near to you to judgment. I'm not going to sit way back and ponder your heart. I'm going to come near in judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against false swearers, against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and to turn aside the stranger from his right, that is, third tithe, 
And fear not me, says the Eternal of hosts. If we don't take care of things the way God says to do it, not as we decide we want to do it, we will have swift judgment. For I am the Eternal, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now, he doesn't talk just to the Levites here. He talks to all of us, the sons of Jacob, all the tribes. It changes, doesn't it? He says, you better be thankful. I'm merciful and kind and loving and forgiving. Otherwise, you would be blotted out as Achan was and as the way others were who rebelled against God and against those whom he sent. Don't worry, Samuel, they've not rebelled against you, they've rebelled against me. Even from the days of your fathers, you were gone away from my ordinances, and have not kept them. Now God says, you've always wanted to get away from my ordinances. You've not really wanted to do what I say to do. Turn to me, and I will return to you, says the Eternal of hosts. Now, haven't we said, and I had it already today, that God says when we turn with our whole heart, he will turn to us. Now, we can get emotional about it and say, well, I'm turning my whole heart over to God. But if you don't do things the way he says... You were holding part of your heart back. And Christ made it very clear that where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. You cannot separate them. You can't do it, according to his words. You cannot serve God and money. He said that in the same context. You can't do both. Period. Zilch. Not a Period. Can't be done. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Eternal of hosts. But you said, wherein shall we return? What do you mean by that? What are you talking about? I love you with my whole heart, we might say. So what are you talking about, God? Now what example does God use to show what he means? Which ordinances? He might have picked out one of several. What did he pick out? Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Eternal of hosts. But you said, wherein shall we return? <clears throat> will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. What do you mean by that? What do you mean, God, we've robbed you? I wouldn't rob God. But you say, wherein have we robbed you? And his answer is, in tithes and offerings. He includes both. That doesn't leave any wiggle room for someone who says, well, it's just free will offerings, because God includes both. He made ordinances about tithes and ordinances about offerings. Now that is the example God chose to use. 
There are not a lot of people, well, I, I say a lot, there are quite a few who stayed with Worldwide and so on, who went back to Sunday worship and Christmas and Easter. So, in a larger sense, he could have used the Sabbath or the Holy Days. But it wouldn't have covered the whole gamut because we have those who have kept hold of the Sabbath and kept hold of the Holy Days, and yet some of those are turning away from tithes and offerings and saying they're done away. So God picked out one that would apply to a greater majority of the church than just the Sabbath or Holy Days. Now that is the example he uses to the end-time church, to all Israel, to all the sons of Jacob. It's not talking to the Levites here. You are cursed with a curse. Now if we, in the church of God, withhold our tithes, we are cursed with a curse. Now God will not turn his face to those who do not tithe. He will not do it. It has to do with our heart, part of the heart. It's not just emotion. God says, I, don't, I won't know them by emotion. I'll know them by the fruits, by obedience. We have to walk in the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances of God, not just have a feeling in our heart. Because God says in Jeremiah 17, the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So your heart as a human being, by nature, is deceitful and desperately wicked. You cannot trust your emotions, your mind and heart. You cannot, brethren, trust your thoughts. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, says God in Isaiah. You have to go by his word and by what he says. And do what he says, or he says your heart is compromised. I don't care how much emotion you have. Protestants have a lot of emotion. But they are not of God. They have a sweet feeling toward Jesus. But it is not of God. It is human, carnal, selfish, deceitful, desperately wicked thinking. Let's understand the difference between emotion and obedience. It applies to the church, and this whole nation is also not tithing, and God is about to destroy it, send it into captivity. One-third to die of famine and pestilence, one-third to die of the sword, and one-third to go as slaves and make clothes for the rich and the elite for pennies. Now, his instruction is, 
bring you all the tithes into the storehouse, into the treasury, just like in the days of Joshua. You see, God took it personal when Achan took that, which God said goes into the treasury. He stole, he robbed from God himself. God took it personal. And God held them all accountable. Now, I'm scared if I do not preach clearly the Word of God and then get up off my face and not do something about it. Okay? I do not want this group to be like Achan. I do not want this group to be cursed and God not his face, turn his face to us because we're holding part of our heart back from God. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, says eternal of hosts, if I want to open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Now, this is a specific prophecy about a specific time. Now, I know there are people who have gone back and read this, and they've tithed for a month or six months or a year and said, well, God didn't bless me. I'm not going to do that anymore. How do we limit God to time, whether it be for our physical healing or for blessing from tithing or from any other of his promises? He's made a lot of promises and all those promises throughout the Bible are contingent upon our unwavering, continuing obedience and service to him as a slave of Christ. And he can give us what he chooses. We are committed to a lifetime of walking God's way. So the timing of the end-time prophecies don't have anything to do with that, do they? Now, we would love for it to come to pass very shortly, and I think that we're at the time now where it will. But, so long as it lasts, we are committed to doing things God's way. But this is a specific prophecy just before Christ appears suddenly to his temple and begins to make a judgment of us. And he says, you think you're obeying me and you think your heart's with me? but I'll show you where it's not. Was Christ thinking of this scripture when he said your treasure is, your heart will be where your treasure is? Might have been. He's the one that instructed Malachi to write this about the end time church. Verse 11, And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the eternal of hosts. We have moved out of the cities and into the field as God has told us to. We have not yet had the, re the devourer rebuked. We still get aphids and buds and corn weevils and whatever else afflicts our crops. And God hasn't turned his face to shine on us the way the scriptures say he will. Do we have to get rid of the Achans who will rob God and his treasury? That's the point he makes here, isn't it? And all nations shall call you blessed. 
God's people are going to be a light on a hill. They're going to be given everything they need, covert from the heat. The bugs will go away. And the crops will produce. Every man will have his own vine and fig tree, it says in Zechariah 3, at the time the two witnesses begin to operate on the earth. That's speaking there specifically of Joshua, the end of chapter 3. So at the time of the end, when the end-time temple is about to be built and the witnesses begin to appear is the time when we'll all have our own vine and fig tree, a covert from the heat, and the devourer will come away from our plants. And we will produce. It's very near. Verse 13, Your words have been stout against me, says the Eternal. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tithe. I don't believe in that. Pretty stout words. That's what this is talking about. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? What do you mean? My heart's with you. You have said, so he says, all right, you have said it is vain to serve God and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? Same ordinance he's talking about back in verse 7. He makes it very clear. It's tithes and offerings. Those ordinances. He said, I didn't do any good to tithe. It's vain to do that. I tried that. It didn't work. And that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. We've not wanted to do what he said. We've not done it. Such a burden to obey his ordinances. Such a burden to keep. God gives us 100%. He says, 10%'s mine. Give it into my treasury. 10% belongs to you to take to the feast and keep the feast before God abundantly and not forget the stranger, the widow, the uh, Levite, and the orphan. Shows by use that they are separate tithes. One goes into the treasury and says, give it all to the priests. All. The full tenth to the priests. Then it says, take a tenth and keep it. You don't give it to anybody, but you enjoy the feast and you share it. And then the third and the sixth year out of seven, <coughs> you keep an additional third tithe. You don't give it to the church. You lay it up in your gates for the fatherless, the widow, and so on. So by use, all three are in Scripture, if you are open-minded enough to consider all Scripture, not just the ones you want to hear and say, that's good enough for me. I've heard these reasonings. It's such a burden. Why should we keep his ordinance? It didn't do us any good. And now we call the proud happy. <laughs> Those who are proud, prideful, egocentric, self-righteous, and set their own policies. And say, I'm happy this way. Yes, they that work wickedness are set up. In some cases we look to them. Well, this must be the truth. No, it's not. It's wickedness. Yes, they that tempt God are even delivered, we think. 
I'm delivered to do this. It's okay if I do this. It's okay if I don't do this. And God will bless me anyway because he knows where my heart is. Yes, he does. He knows it's deceitful. He knows it's selfish. It is desperately wicked and will put itself ahead of God's commands. He knows that. He knows that our heart is where our treasure is. I was going to go to Mark, maybe I should, Mark 12. Um, let's go to verse 41. And Emmanuel sat over against the treasury and observed what was going on. He sat over against the treasury and beheld how. He was watching how people did something. How the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. Was he impressed by that? No, he said, that don't impress me much, in the words of a song recently. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing, the seventh part of a brass coin. And he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I say to you, here's a lesson, he says. Here's a lesson that's important for you to get. He called them over. Come here, I want you to see this. This poor widow has cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Do you think there was any question in Christ's mind as to where that woman's heart was? Now, he might question those that made some money and said, oh, I better throw some at the church. They gave of abundance. She gave everything. Now, does that make his words in Matthew 6 even more meaningful? Your heart is where your treasure is. Is there any doubt? Ask yourself this. Do you think based on money that God has any question where your heart is. That's something we need to all ask ourselves. You know, I don't want God questioning my heart. I want him to do as Christ did and say, there's no doubt about that woman. She gave all she had. It can be monetary. It can be emotionally. It can be a lot of ways that we give everything. Because as a slave of Christ, he owns us. He bought us. He paid for us with his own life blood drained on the ground. And we belong to him. Heart, line, and sinker. Everything about us or hook, line, and sinker. What's the heart I'm talking about? He owns the whole pole, the line, the hook, and the bait. It's all his. Now what are we going to hold back from him? Now I realize that I'm preaching to the choir for the most part here today. 
that most of you believe in these things already. And most of you are doing them. So why am I going through this again yet? Verse 16, Then they that feared the Eternal spoke often one to another, and the Eternal hearkened. We speak often of the things of God and heard it, and the book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Eternal and thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, says the Eternal of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. We're talking about the end time coming. God begins to make up his jewels. Then, verse 18, shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the clean and the unclean, as we read in Haggai 2, right at the end as it's time to build the latter temple. Same time he's speaking of here. Same thing he's saying. The righteous and the wicked, the clean and the unclean that which is acceptable and that which is not. That which has its physical treasure in the kingdom of God so that God has no question where the heart is. Between him that serves God and him that serves him not. And the key example he uses here is tithes and offerings. It is a sign. It is a key doctrine. It is an important doctrine. God would not use it in this context if it were not so vitally important to him discerning where our heart really is. And emotion has very little to do with it. It's what does God say and am I willing to do it? Do I have that kind of emotion for God rather than just this feeling in my, in my insides? There's more to it than that. Yes, that needs to be, but there's far more to it than that. For behold, so we've got we to decide who serves God and who serves him not, what is righteous and what is wicked, and this example here is what he uses to show where our hearts are. Okay? For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yes, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Eternal of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. He is equating tithes and offerings and where our physical treasures are with whether or not we survive into the kingdom of God. It is a salvational issue. How could it be clearer than this? I am not giving this sermon because I want more money for the church. I'm giving this sermon because Abraham, the father of the faithful, tithed faithfully to God. And he is the example held up before us by Paul in the New Testament in Hebrews 11. And because God says, that tithes and offerings are a key ordinance in him determining who will be in his kingdom. This isn't about money for the church. Most of you already give tithes and offerings. 
this is what God instructs me to do, to discern the righteous and the unrighteous, the clean and the unclean, and to be sure that once the blessings and curses become dramatic, and it does talk about it in this chapter, that you be blessed greatly and not be cursed greatly. It is my bound responsibility and duty before God to offer you that which is good, not polluted or lame or sick, but true doctrine whereby God judges our heart. Tithing is not something you do occasionally when you feel like it or you feel like you have enough money. Tithing requires responsibility. It requires budgeting. It requires proper management. It is a tool whereby God causes us to handle our money properly. It is a key ingredient of proper management. It also requires faith. I've had those say, well, I can't see it in the Bible, I'm not going to do it, or I tried it and it didn't work. And then you have those who say, well, I believe it, I just can't afford it. It also requires faith. Now, it is not fair. It's just not fair for those who understand and know and obey and sacrifice before God to have those among us who will not, for whatever reason. It's not fair to you. And brethren, it's not fair to them. From now on, I am going to get up off my face and do something for you and for God. No one need even think about moving on to this property and be a part of this group if they do not accept and believe in the tithing system as the church and we have believed and do believe. They will not be welcome here any more than if they wouldn't keep the Sabbath or the Holy Days. God makes this a pivotal, important part of his definition of the righteous in Malachi 3. It is not a minor thing. It is a major doctrine. It must be practiced by men and women if they work, if they have increase. God lays it upon the ministry to make a difference between the clean and the unclean and to return and discern between that 
which serves God and which serves Him not. I want every last one of you who hears this to be in the kingdom of God. This is not aimed at anybody in particular. This is aimed at a movement in the greater church of God that seems to be getting a life of its own. I will let the chips fall where they will. I do not want to have to stand before God and Him say, why did you let some of my words drop to the ground? Every one of us has a difficult time every day bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ. But we have to put aside our vanity, our ego, because God says, I will have a humble and meek people and I will save them and those who fear and tremble at my word. And I have no doubt about God's word on this subject, whatever. Malachi makes it very clear. So those of you who might be out across the nation who hear this today or who hear it at some other time when you come in contact with this group, let it be known. But if you come here, it will be with the purpose in your heart of obeying every word of God and not picking and choosing what you want to keep. The playing field has to be level. We must all come under the rod. We must all be measured against the plumb line of God's word. Now, I've not made... I've made an issue, I've preached it, over and over, but I've not made it this dramatic, nor have I made it this ironclad. But if anybody moves here, they're going to keep the Sabbath, they're going to keep the holy days, they're going to do the things we do the way we do them, and that includes tithing. That is God's standard. That's what we all live by. If anyone does less, then I can't lay on my face and allow it. Okay? It's God's law. It's what He says. It's His words. But He's put me in a position that I can not go on and on and on. I believe that God has shown us great mercy. He's given us several years here now to change some attitudes, to grow, to overcome. But he says that he will take care of the rebellious men of Anatoth, young men of Anatoth, basically. And he says he will purge the rebels from among us in Ezekiel. And I think he is in the process of doing that. And if that is the play that God is making, See, I've tried to be patient, I've been trying to be merciful, I've been trying to wait, give you opportunity to grow, to change, to overcome, whoever you might be, in whatever areas of overcoming you need. But understand this, that when God is ready to move his people from the wilderness into the promised land, when he is willing to move his people from having his face turned from them to smiling upon them and blessing them abundantly, there are certain things that have to occur. 
And we have to either pass under the rod, be measured against the plumb line, or be rejected. And tithing and offering in the way that he prescribes in Scripture is one of the key doctrines involved when he makes up his jewels and determines who will be in his kingdom. It is not one that can be ignored. And it's not one that I can ignore. I'm sorry. Now you see, God is moving people out. I'm not. After they leave, all I have to do is say, God made a move. <laughs> I'm going to honor it. I'm going to back it up. Don't come back till you change some things. I've done that in more than one case now. Hope I don't have to do it anymore. I hope that we take what precious little time is left and repent and change our attitudes and grow. If we can't do it here, then we really, really should go somewhere else to do it. If you have an attitude about me and the way I do things, then you need to find yourself someone to speak to you to whom you can respond and who better agrees with what you believe. Why make yourself miserable being here if you're against this, that, and the other thing that we believe and teach? Why bother? Why not go somewhere else to someone that's better aligned with your own way of thinking? Or someone who has the capacity to help you see and grow and overcome and change your thinking. We've had years to do it here. And I believe God is about to make a move very shortly now, whether the next months or year or two, and things are going to change. And he wants those here who will separate the clean from the unclean and righteousness from unrighteousness. And this is a key ingredient that we've talked about today. So be advised, and if you're giving some thought to moving out here, don't even think about it unless you're willing to tithe in the manner prescribed in the Bible as we understand it. Abraham did. He was the father of the faithful. And we're supposed to be turning our hearts to those who have been faithful to God. And Christ said that money is one key ingredient of where our heart truly is in spite of where we might think it is. So, if you have issues, wherever you might be, please think and pray about this because I want you in the good graces of God, and I want his face to shine on you, whoever you are. And this is part of it.